0: everyone. Welcome back to Prepare the Way Extras. My name is Carol, and I'm so glad you're tuning in today because we are continuing our Why Israel series. And today is a really, really important topic and a difficult topic. It is, did the church replace Israel? And this is part four of this five-part series. I can't believe we only have two left, but it is a real challenging topic because it is a hot button within the body of Christ. There are people who disagree strongly and have very strong opinions on this matter. And quite a bit of conflict and heated discussions have taken place as a result. So let's just go there. I'm not afraid to talk about tough things. And I think we need to just go there and and have a great discussion. And But as always, like I tell people in our Bible studies and I tell people in these podcasts, never take a person's word for things. You can read books, you can listen to teachers, you can listen to podcasts, but I strongly encourage you, always go to the Word of God to back everything up, and always go and ask the Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Truth, ask Him to show you truth in all matters, and He will. So I'm just going to start right out by having you grab your Bible, if you have it handy. Otherwise, grab it later and do these things that I'm telling you to do. And I want you to turn to chapters 9, 10, and 11. These are three chapters in the book of Romans that are so important to study, and yet they are actually chapters that are rarely, if ever, discussed in church settings, Bible studies, or anywhere. We tend to avoid them. And what we tend to do is we love to talk about, well, half of Romans chapter one, because people struggle with the second half of Romans chapter one, and then we glide on through to chapter eight, and then we might pull hmm, a couple things out of maybe chapter 10, like blessed are the feet that go and bring good news and things like that, but we skip over and go straight into chapter 12 and take the rest of the book to the end. And a lot of people have no idea what's in these other three chapters. And keep in mind, Paul never did write this letter, nor was any of the rest of the Bible manuscripts written with chapters and verses. So when Paul wrote a letter, it was a continuous stream of thought. One thought flowed into the next thought, and they were all important and all purposeful. Because what was happening in this letter is Paul was addressing a couple of things. There was a tension going on. And there was a tension going on with Jewish believers because they became too legalistic. And then there was a tension going on with Gentile believers who became too licensed in their faith. And Paul was trying to address these tensions. And he does it pretty much on every page. And opinions were starting to grow uh, pretty strong between the different believers on who was more important, who was doing it right, who was doing it wrong. And Paul is trying to settle the matter. But when you get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, he addresses it. And what I find important, and this might really help you, is if you can break down these chapters or these sections of scripture, if you don't like to use the chapters, as this. Paul is addressing the past of the Jewish people, their past. He's addressing their present, but he's also addressing their future. So if you can look at, you know, most of chapter nine as Paul addressing uh, the past or the history of the Jewish people, then look at chapter 10 as him addressing their present, what they need, but then also in chapter 11, which is the most controversial chapter, how he addresses their future. And I think many of you, when you study these chapters, you're going to come to your own conclusion on this question all by yourself with the help of the Holy Spirit. So here we are now in these three chapters, and I want to begin by sharing with you what Paul says about the past of the Jewish people. He wants to remind his readers that the Jewish people are still important. They were always important to God. They have actually had an astonishing effect on the world, whatever your opinion is on the Jewish people or Israel. Throughout the ages, they have had an astonishing effect on the rest of the world, especially in proportion to their size. I mean, just as a side note, consider that they are only 0.1% of the world's population, but yet they've supplied 25% of the world's scientists. Did you know that? Or that how they have supplied a majority of the world's entertainment and films, meaning that all five Hollywood studios were Jewish, pretty incredible to me. And in the fields of music and architecture or even technology, whatever you name, you will find Jews at the top of their profession or on the boards. And it just shows that they have become very shrewd and clever as a result of the things that God allowed to happen to them. And that was the same even in the past. And so Paul lists some things out in chapter 9 that he wants to remind the people of. And I think it's important we are reminded of this as well. First of all, they were and are the sons of God. They had his divine glory in their temple. Go and read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Read the presence of God that was with his people. They had the covenants of God. Did you know that every covenant in scripture was made with the Jewish people? With Noah, the covenant with Noah, it was made with their ancestors. With The covenant with Abraham was made with their fathers. The covenant with Moses and the covenant with David was made with them. And then you have the mention of the new covenant. And it's mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, the new covenant that we have in Christ. Well, it was first mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, where he's going to pour out his spirit and Write, our law upon, write the law upon our hearts, and so on and so forth. Well, you know, when you read in Jeremiah about the new covenant, don't miss this. It says that the covenant is going to be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The new covenant was going to be made with Jewish people. Never forget that. It was first promised to the Jewish people. And there is a parable that Jesus shares about the kingdom of God is like a king who has prepared for a wedding ceremony, a wedding. And the people that he invited kind of blew him off. They didn't care and they didn't want to come and they didn't respond. So he told his servants, fine, fine, Go out into the highways, go out into the byways, and go find everyone else you can find, good or bad, and I'll deal with it. Bring them to the wedding. And so the new covenant was made for the Jewish people. That's why Jesus says, I came for my people. But because they rejected him, it went out to the Gentiles. And so that's how we came in to this new covenant. But the new covenant is still Christ. But the point is, they had the covenants of God, all of them. Every one of them was made with the Jewish people. The other point that Paul was making in chapter nine is that they also were the ones that received the law, that God entrusted them with his law. He wanted them to be an example to the nations of the world on how to live righteously. They also had temple worship. They had every promise of God that was in the Old Testament was made to them. And so Paul is writing and reminding people, look, don't be so um, Gentile believers. Don't sit here and think that you have something more than they do, um, I want to remind you how blessed they are and how much God trusted them with the holy things that he trusted to nobody else. The patriarchs were theirs. And then Paul continues in chapter 9 and then says, and above all else, it was to them that God gave his son, the Messiah, the Christ. And so we should always be grateful to the Jewish people and especially to that couple, Joseph and Mary, who were probably in their late teens when Jesus was born and how they kept him safe from Herod. And so Paul is offering this reminder because, again, he is dealing with a tension. The Jewish believers over here are holding on to legalistic things and they think they're right. The Gentile believers are holding on to their freedom so much that they think they're right. And Paul is trying to tell them teach each of them something important. And so then he tells them that God has the right to choose whomever he chooses to receive his blessings. And so that is first and foremost, I think, something we have to recognize and highlight in this chapter, this portion of the book of Romans. The next thing he addresses is in chapter 10, and he starts to talk about the present. He moves from there. And then begins to speak of the Jews' rejection of their own Messiah. And then Paul shares his deep, deep sorrow over that rejection because that's his people. Paul's a Jew and he desires his brothers to be saved. He desires his brethren to be saved. But there was something that was happening. They were stumbling over Messiah. They were stumbling over Jesus. You know, if you've ever tried to evangelize Jews, you'll find they are the hardest people on the earth to lead to Christ. Missionaries have tried over the last 150 years and they've had mm, some success, but there's something pretty incredible that's been happening that's actually bringing them to Messiah. Ever since they got their land back in 1948, thousands of Jews are turning to their Messiah and it continues today. And it's all happening not in the way people expected. It. It's happening by Jews leading other Jews to their Messiah. It's actually one of the miracles happening in our lifetime, and we miss it because we never talk about this. And there is a website I encourage you to go visit. It is called One for Israel. If you've ever watched those videos, I Am Second, about Christian testimonies, on One for Israel website, they have a section of testimonies of Jewish people coming to faith in their Messiah, into Jesus. And it's their testimonies, and they're well done, just like I am second. And if you're on Instagram, they have you can follow them on I am one for Israel. And so there is this incredible thing happening that we need to take note of. and But Paul is addressing this like, look, their rejection, they still need the gospel. And how will they hear it unless someone's sent? And how some, you know, unless it's preached and how will it be preached unless someone's sent and blessed are the feet that bring good news. That's how that whole thing comes in. That's the whole context of that verse. And there's this author, you can write her name down, Julia Fisher, for those of you who love to study this stuff or want to learn more, she's been writing much on this subject about Jews and Arabs actually coming to faith in Messiah and and how they're meeting together in the Middle East. And you can find her book. She has multiple books, you can find them on Amazon. But there's one case that she reports where there's up to a thousand Jews and Arabs that are meeting secretly in the forests of Israel in the name of Jesus. And it's exciting. God is doing this new thing. He has brought them back to the land after being out of it for 2,000 years. And he promised that when he did that, he would also bring them back to himself. And he's doing that right now on an unprecedented scale. And we are the generation that is living to see this covenant he has with Israel fulfilled. And so it's really incredible to me. But but in chapter ten, I, I kind of digress there from it. But in chapter ten, Paul is dealing with this. Their rejection grieved him so deeply. They need the gospel, and and Paul then delivers a really difficult truth. He says, "Look, Gentiles are entering the kingdom," and by our time period, of course, billions have come into the kingdom. But Paul's grieved. He's like Gentiles are entering the kingdom, while his brothers are staying difficult. And why are they staying difficult? He says because they're trying to achieve righteousness on their own, rather than achieve it or receive it through God's Son, Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is in the middle of the road, right in front of the Jewish people, and they're falling over him. There's this ignorance that prevents them from seeing Jesus as he really is. And the Gentiles have found their way in so easily, right? They're zealous for God. The Jews are zealous for God. If you've ever been to Israel and gone to the wailing wall, you know what I'm talking about. They are zealous for God. Yet many of them still do not have this knowledge. And so that's chapter 10. And so Paul is dealing with this tension. He's trying to teach a lesson to the Jews who are legalistic and the Gentiles who who think they got it all figured out, right? And he's trying to address this tension. The Jews are still very special people. They've just become very stubborn. Now he moves into chapter 11, where he's going to address something very strong to the Gentile believers. See, in chapter 11, Paul's dealing with the future of the Jewish people. And he actually reveals a mystery, a secret. And he is permitted to reveal this. And the secret is that the Jews will be saved in the future. You know, the world today, friends, says that the Jews deserve all they get. There is a lot of anti-Semitism out there. Even the church, for years, accused the Jews of killing Jesus. In fact, this is nothing for us to be proud of, but the history of anti-Semitism in the church over the last 2,000 years is, is horrible. When Christians got power under Constantine, this became bad news for the Jews. They closed their synagogues, they changed their holy days, and so much more. Martin Luther himself, yes, that Martin Luther, the Martin Luther of the Reformation, he was actually one of the worst. I hate to break it to you. At first, he thought that if he preached the simple gospel to the Jews, they'd respond. But then he found them difficult, stubborn, just like Paul was addressing in chapter 10. So he turned against them. And did you know Martin Luther's final sermon was an appeal to Germany to get rid of the Jews, to burn their synagogues, destroy their books, banish the rabbis, take all of their documentation away from them. And guess what? He delivers this sermon and he dies a few short days later. And that was the final sermon Martin Luther ever preached, was an anti-Semitic sermon. So Paul begins chapter 11 with this question. Has God rejected the Jews? And Paul says, never. And later in that chapter, he asks the question, have the Jews fallen beyond hope? Will they never recover? And Paul says, never. God has not rejected them. And we see in chapter 11 that even though they broke the covenant with him, God will always, he vowed he would never break it with them. And so it's really important that we understand this. Everywhere Paul went, he preached first to the Jews. That's what he was instructed to do. And when or if they rejected him, he then would go and preach to the Gentiles. And they received the message. And that's how the gospel spread. And so Paul then says something really interesting in chapter 11. Look, your, their falling away, their rejection of God made the entryway possible for Gentiles to come to faith. It's that parable of the wedding. That new covenant Jeremiah was talking about was for the house of Judah, house of Israel, but they rejected it just like they do in that parable of the wedding but now it's open to everybody and so he says if their rejection meant all of this for you then here's what you got to do you should use this to make them jealous in your n if you have an niv bible the word you might see is not jealous but envious and that's actually not that's not the word you want to use for this. You do want to use the word jealous because they're slightly different. Jealous means if, if you can picture like, say, if you have a friend group, you're young and someone runs off with your best friend and then they become their best friend, right? She was yours or his or whatever. And now she's somebody else's best friends. That's when you're jealous. You're jealous over that person having what was yours. But envious is a little different. Envious is if you have, if you are in a friend group, but you see another friend group that you want to be part of, you're envious of that other group. You want to become part of that group. Well, that's what Paul is suggesting in chapter 11. To make a Jew jealous, he wants the Gentiles to make Jews jealous. But to make a Jew jealous is not by saying, we've got something you haven't. But by saying rather, we found something you have. We have your scriptures. We have found the Jewish Messiah. That makes them jealous. Not, we've found the Lord and you haven't. That would be trying to make them envious. You see, friends, God brought the gospel to us to make them jealous so that they say, that's ours. What are you doing with that? That's ours. We've been trying to make them envy us, envy us, but that's not the right method. Paul's method was to arouse their jealousy. And that's what we need to do. And you know, it made me think of two situations years ago, probably about eight, nine years ago, I was teaching a very, very, very long study on Israel in different capacities. And I remember going to a Jewish friend of mine who is an atheist Jew, because I wanted to borrow some of the things for her when we were talking about the Feast of the Lord. I look back on that now. She was so curious as to what I was teaching on. She wanted to know everything I was teaching on. And she was actually super excited that I was teaching on this stuff. It was making her jealous. I was taking something that was hers and teaching it to other people. And the other funny thing about that whole series is there's a rabbi in town, in my town. He's a reformed rabbi. There's different sects of Judaism, but he's a reformed rabbi. He actually became curious enough. Not only did he come to one of our Bible studies to hear what I was teaching on. He actually came to my house and invited me to teach a Hebrew class with him, which is really funny. I didn't do it, but it's just funny. And you start thinking of these things. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about. We have to make them jealous. Do you notice today how many Christians are starting to be interested in learning about a Seder meal at Passover? I am seeing this more and more and more. Christians are starting to want to understand the whole full picture of Passover, the deliverance out of Egypt, Jesus' fulfillment in it, and so they're practicing it and learning about it through a Seder meal. That's the kind of thing that makes Jews jealous. Passover and Seder is mine. No, it's ours too. That makes them jealous. And that's what we're supposed to do, make them jealous in chapter 11. And it's good, but the flip side is this, it's made Gentiles arrogant. And that's what the tension Paul was addressing with the Gentiles. They become so licensed in their faith that they were almost arrogant. That's the danger of the church is becoming arrogant in our freedom in Christ. And many of us have fallen for it. There is a theology. When we say, did the church replace Israel? There's a name for it, a theological name for it. It's called replacement theology. The church is now the new Israel, the spiritual Israel. Have you heard that terminology before? Well, if you have, it's not found in your Bible. So we have to go to the origin, which we're going to get to in a minute. But I want to tell you, replacement theology is arrogance. And Paul has reached a point in his letter in this chapter where three times in this chapter, he accuses the Gentile believers of arrogance and boasting. No wonder the church doesn't teach on this. And Paul makes some very strong statements. He says, if their rejection of Christ brought the gospel to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If their rejection meant so much to the rest of the world that it literally opened up all of these billions of people to have access into the kingdom of God, how much more will their acceptance mean when they recognize Messiah? These gifted and blessed people who have blessed people with so much. And Paul is saying it will happen it's not a hypothetical. When they come to Christ, Paul says, I am absolutely sure they will come to Christ. And then what will happen? Well, let me give you a scenario. I mentioned a few things that they were rec- Jewish people were recognized for, but I want you to consider a few more. Think of a Jewish impact so far. Google was created by two Jewish colleagues, Genetic engineering, the breakthrough we have in cancers or food technology and more, was made possible by a man named Paul Berg. He was a Jewish scientist in 1972. Drip irrigation technology, which is critical in dry regions of the world, created by Jewish people. Turning algae into heart tissue, created by Jewish scientists. Pacemakers and defibrillators, did I pronounce that right? Those were created by a Jewish man named Paul Zoll. He was the pioneer of that technology. How many people you know that have a pacemaker or use defibrillators? Hans Goldschmidt, he developed the process for stainless steel in 1895. The very first flashlight was made by a man of Conrad Hubert and eventually became Ever Ready Company. Do Do you see this? Sylvan Goldman invented the shopping cart, the thing that you roll around in every day to go to the grocery. The TV remote was made by Jewish people. Have you ever used a telephone, flying an airplane? Have you ever had an injection of Novocaine at the dentist? We have benefited from the Jewish people so much because God has blessed them. And he has not removed his blessing. If we got all of that, my friends, from their rejection of the gospel, what will happen when they return, as Paul says? What will happen when they finally see their Messiah? What will happen when that takes place? And that's the point Paul is trying to make. Look to you Jewish legalistic believers, you still need Jesus. And to you Gentile um arrogant believers over here, you've got to recognize that you need the Jews still because we will never come into our fullness without each other. The Jews need us and we need them. And so Paul is saying to make them jealous without making ourselves arrogant. He says some of the Jewish branches of the olive tree, all of this is in chapter 11. They have been cut out And some of you Gentiles were grafted in. Only some Jews were cut out, the unbelieving Jews. It's a very Jewish tree that we Gentiles have been grafted into. Our faith, my friends, has Jewish roots. But we've taken on Greek roots for some reason. We have more Greek influence within the body of Christ and within our church institutions than we have Hebraic roots. Never forget that your roots as a believer are Hebraic roots, and the root supports you. That root supports me. That root supports the body of Christ. We don't support the root. Then Paul dares to say something. If God cuts some of the Jews out when they lost faith in him, he can also cut some of you out if you lose your faith in him. If you don't continue in the faith till the end, he says, he says, guess what? You could be cut off. That flies in the face of that whole once saved, always saved doctrine, doesn't it? Perhaps that's why we're always instructed in scriptures to serve the Lord with fear or to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know, it's not the faith you start with, but it that saves you. It's the faith you finish with. Because scripture says he who endures." Till the end, will be saved. That's perhaps why there's over 80 verses in the New Testament alone that tell you to hold on to what you have. If it was that easy for us, there would be no warnings or exhortations to hold on to our salvation. I want to share something with you too. Just as a side note, my friends, every time the word believe comes in John's gospel, most times it's in a special Greek tense called present continual. It means to go on believing. And in John three sixteen, when it says, for God so loved the world that whoever believes on him, that actually technically the Greek tense, in that is whoever goes on believing in him, we have to continue believing in him. And Paul makes this strong warning to these Gentile believers in the book of Romans. Guess what? Don't be arrogant. Because God, just as he cut out his own people from the olive tree, he can cut you out. But guess what? God can also graft them. Those that he cut out, he can graft back in. And how will he graft them back in? By removing the hard hearts and softening their hearts again to Messiah. Israel as a whole, it says all of Israel will be saved. Well, When you study the Old Testament, what that really means is a representatives of Israel, not all, but representatives. They will come to the son of David, to Jesus at some point and be joined to the olive tree. And friends, the whole point of this olive tree Paul is describing in chapter 11 is being one new man together. That is what is the most important thing. One day God is going to show mercy to the Jewish people and soften their hearts. In fact, in the prophet Zechariah, it says when they see him, when they finally notice him, they will look upon the one whom they pierced and they are going to weep and repent as a nation. There will be national repentance in Israel. There will be national repentance among the heritage of the Jewish people. That is going to be something that is going to be an incredible moment of time. That's why it's so important. Paul is trying to resolve this tension that is in the letter to the Romans. He's resolving this tension with the Jews, this tension with the Gentiles. And he's saying, look, you guys need each other. Our future is interlinked. We are heading to a city that is filled with Jewish references. Read the end of Revelation. There is, we are going to be one people, one new man in a very Jewish city, the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem and already our lord has gone to prepare a place for all of us and god is so and paul is so overwhelmed by the thought of this this need that we have for each other this need that we have for the jews and the gentile believers to work together and understand each other he's so overwhelmed that he literally stops teaching and bursts out in praise at the end of chapter 11 this is where you have preachers that will quote the Uh, very end of chapter 11 where it says from him through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen and paul is so overwhelmed by this thought and he's trying to get it through their heads we're interlinked we are becoming one new man so when we're all sitting out here fighting over did the church replace israel no Who is Israel today? It is this olive tree. It is the natural and the wild olive tree. It is when we are becoming together, rooted together in Christ, becoming one new man. Friends, this theology that's out there is man-made. It started in the second and third centuries, roughly 200 years after the church began. And when you study epistles, when you study early church fathers and early church martyrs like Polycarp and Ignatius and people that were trained under John himself, and you see that there is a rhythm, a relationship, there is camaraderie, there is a love, a solidness between both Jewish and Gentile believers up until Rome took over. And Rome, when they took over Christianity, they made some big changes. And the people that took the brunt of that? were the Jewish believers in Jesus. They had a huge impact on the Jewish people and their future. And they also changed the perception within the church of the Jewish people and their future. They took away their Sabbath. They took away their Passover. They took away how they worshiped. And then they told them that they needed to follow all, anything related to their Jewish roots was stripped away. And Christian practice, they now had to follow the Christian practices that were being constructed under a Roman system. And that's where we've stayed. We've stayed in these traditions that were created by a Roman system. And this, my friends, like it or not, was the beginning of the church losing her Hebraic roots. And ultimately, years later, that's where we took on more of a Greek influence, which is still evident today, as I mentioned. And so this is really important. You know, please read chapters 9. Chapters 10 and chapter 11 of the Book of Romans. Keep in mind, my friends, years ago, people didn't own a Bible. They didn't own a Bible until after Gutenberg created the printing press in the mid-1400s. And then the next several hundred years, as Bibles became more in circulation and people were able to read for themselves, that they started challenging some of the things and the traditions in which they learned all those years ago. And I think that we, as a society, we need to dig into our scriptures. We need to see God is still speaking through the scriptures today. We need to really adhere to what he is saying. This theology, this theology took off because there was no way for church leaders to explain the prophecies or explain the promises concerning Israel or the Jewish people in the latter days before Jesus' return, when Israel was destroyed in the first century. When the temple was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD, when the people were taken captives as slaves, when another revolt happened and the remaining people were all kicked out of the land. So for 2,000 years, Israel was non-existent. How else are church leaders supposed to explain these prophecies, these promises, unless they came up with a doctrine? The church has replaced Israel. Since Israel's no more, then we are the new Israel. But that started to break apart into pieces when Israel became a nation again in 1948. And God was showing the world, I'm still in control. And for the last 70 years, as Israel has flourished beyond anybody's expectations, this theology, this replacement theology is falling apart. People cannot explain what is happening over there except by the sheer will and favor and miracles of God himself. He is fulfilling his promises with his people. He is fulfilling his promises with his covenant because he never breaks covenant. And so this whole thought of, did the church replace Israel? No, but we are to become one new man with them. We are to receive the blessings that have come through the covenants together because we as Gentile believers are grafted into this most holy root and we are all headed to this holy city together. So if you really want to know and understand what's happening, friends, in the world today or the future, if you want to understand prophecy, if you want to even understand the book of Revelation better, Watch what's happening in Israel. Pay attention to what's happening over there because God is doing a miraculous work. And if we all just paid attention, we would probably understand not only that better, but our faith better. I hope this blessed you today. I look forward to our last one, our last time of Why Israel, where we are going to discuss some of these prophetic fulfillments. God bless you.